Last year, I went to a, uh, I was a groomsman in a wedding, and 10 days before the wedding, I asked the groom, hey, are we gonna have to do that thing where they like introduce the wedding party and we have to dance out onto the dance floor? And he said, and I quote, nah, dude, that shit is corny. <laughs> 10 days later, I am dancing out onto the dance floor <laughs> to the sounds of who let the dogs out. This guy thought he could nix major wedding decisions. He couldn't even nix the Baja men. <laughs> my fiance, I don't, I don't want to do my wife as crazy jokes because she's not, and I love her, and she's sitting right there, so that would be awkward. <laughs> but let me tell you one little crazy thing that she, she does sometimes. <laughs> uh, we'll turn off the light, get into bed, get ready for bed. I am halfway asleep, and she'll say, I have a question. You can just ask your question. There's only two of us here. <laughs> I'm not your high school English teacher. I don't have to like acknowledge you before you start talking. Okay, my question is, would you be sad if I died? <laughs> the sexiest pillow talk. Yes, of course. It's your boy Sifo here, here to let you know that the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th, 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers. I'm not sure it could They say Time heals everything But I'm still waiting I'm through With doubt There's nothing left for me To figure out I've paid 
loving the all-new camera system on iPhone 11. Excuse me, everybody. You're listening to uh, Mutiny Radio. We've had a momentary glitch um, right in the middle of Natalie Mines, not ready to make nice.
must fall So I swear I see my reflection I'm not sure. We're looking right now for uh, looking for something by Chris Christopherson. And uh, you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. And this is the B. Here we go. Busted flat bat rules. Heading for the train. Feeling nearly faded as my dream. Bobby thumbed the diesel down just before it rained. Took us all the way to New Orleans. I pulled my harpoon out of my dirty red bandana. Blue and 
sad while Bobby sang the blues. With them windshield wipers slapping time and Bobby clapping hands, we finally sang up every song that driver knew. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. Feeling good was easy, Lord, when Bobby sang the blues. Feeling good was good enough for me. Good enough for me and Bobby McGee.
morning, everybody. This is the B, and you are tuned to Mutiny Radio, the home of next week's fantastic, very edifying comedy festival. Come on in from March 1st to March 8th. An entire week of comedians, 76 comics from all over the country will converge on Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street for the first day. First day will be the first, a Sunday. So come on down. Okay, this is the B, and um, the show you're listening to is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you course they don't want you to organize of course they don't want you to get together and form alliances of course they don't want you to have a union your work makes them rich huh of course they don't want you to have a union labor and love radio where the labor meets the road and we started out with our rather garbled opening there Started out with, uh, well, the last one we played was The Highwayman. Highwayman named Chris Christofferson with a collection of back people backing him up. A very spirited version of his uh, 60s, 70s anthem, Bobby McGee. I always thought it worked better as a, a honky-tonk type song, the way they played it just now, rather than uh, soft and more uh, quote-unquote sincere delivery. And before that, we had Nina Simone singing Dylan's I Shall Be Released uh, in a way that uh, probably found all kinds of new corridors within that song uh, that the author never dreamed of. Who knows? And then before that, the Dixie Chicks. Haven't heard much from the Dixie Chicks. Uh, One critic described them as a third rail country and Western group now since uh, they criticized President Bush at the beginning of the uh, Iraqi war many years ago. And uh, if they had been rock and rollers or if they'd been... Uh, it had been folk music or, but they were country and Western artists. One of the best country and the biggest grossing country and Western groups in history. And they, Natalie Maines, their lead singer stepped out and said, we're ashamed to be from Texas because of the way our president is acting. 
And, uh, of course, that provoked an uproar, not only political, but uh, gender-based. Who are these women who are trying to take a stand? Why don't they just shut up and sing? They're making all kinds of money. That kind of thing. Uh, Anyway, that was the Dixie Chicks. What have we got for you today? Who was Malcolm X? If you haven't tuned in to Netflix, to the excellent documentary, One Man's Quest to Solve the Mystery of Who Killed Malcolm X, kind of very high energy, interspersed with uh, Malcolm's speeches and his message, which we're going to talk about a little more. We've got Radio Labor, your worldwide labor connection. Um, a, an L.A. painter named Shizu Saldamando puts an, a, a face on Chicanismo. Labor history in two minutes. And our labor beat got several interesting articles today on the labor beat. We've got the Pissed Off Voter's Guide and the Bernie Cracks Guide for those of you who vote in San Francisco. Please vote, everybody. Please get in the habit of voting. The majority in this country has always been on the left. It's always been progressive. But it's been hijacked. Conservatives have figured it out how to govern the country from a minority position. And the way they do it, of course, is to divide us. Every time you hear someone yelling about immigrants crossing. Ladies and gentlemen, our problem is not that people come here to work and come for a better life. In fact, that's always been sold as the major attraction here in the U.S., not our problem. Our big problem is that we're being governed by a minority, a greedy capitalistic minority. End of speech. So I've got the Democratic, uh, I've got um, the Pissed Off Voters Guide and the Bernie Kratz Guide. We'll see how they compare. Okay, this is going to be, it looks like as Sanders gains more and more momentum, it looks like it's going to be a situation where we're going to have to combine. We're going to have to ally ourselves with one another and fight this together to get rid of uh, Mr. Trump and his ilk. See, that's the thing now. It's not just Mr. Trump. It's what the forces that Mr. Trump has released in our country. They were always there, but now they're emboldened. All right. Well, all right. Who was Malcolm X? Let's see. 
first question Malcolm is asking is, who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate? You should ask who yourself, who taught you to hate being what God gave you. How did one man go from petty criminal to becoming a global voice against racism? He's one of the most prominent Muslims in modern history and a symbol of black liberation who has inspired generations. A gangster, a preacher, and a revolutionary, this is the extraordinary journey of Malcolm X. Malcolm X was born in 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. His parents, Earl and Louise Little, were followers of the Pan-African activist Marcus Garvey. As a result, their family was subjected to constant harassment by the Ku Klux Klan, who burned down their home when Malcolm was just four years old. The family moved to Michigan, where they were threatened by the Black Legion, an offshoot of the KKK. Four of Malcolm's uncles were also murdered by white racists. Malcolm's father died when he was six. The incident was officially ruled a streetcar accident, although his mother believed he had ultimately been murdered by the Black Legion. When Malcolm was 13, his mother was committed to a mental institution. Her children were split up and sent to different foster homes. Malcolm was an excellent student, but dropped out of school after a white teacher told him it was unrealistic for a young black boy to have aspirations of being a lawyer. After a few years in Michigan and Boston, he moved to Harlem at the age of 18, where he was involved in gambling, robbery, drug dealing, and pimping. At the age of 21, after committing a string of robberies with a small gang in Boston, Malcolm was arrested and sentenced to eight to 10 years at Charlestown State Prison. Incarceration was the beginning of Malcolm's transformation. While in prison, his siblings began writing to him about the Nation of Islam and its leader, Elijah Muhammad. The Nation of Islam promoted black independence and rejected the notion of the superiority of white people. Instead, Elijah Muhammad taught his followers a form of separatism from whites, who were actually considered devils, inferior to black people who were the original inhabitants of Earth. Malcolm, initially hostile to the idea of any religion, eventually became a member of the nation. He read books constantly and began writing regularly to Elijah Muhammad. Muhammad's followers were taught to abandon their given family names as they were actually the names of former slave owners. So Malcolm Little became Malcolm X. After being paroled, Malcolm visited Elijah Muhammad in Chicago. In June the next year, he was named Assistant Minister of the Nation of Islam's Temple No. 1 in Detroit. He later established Boston's Temple No. 11 and expanded Temple No. 12 in Philadelphia. And those of you who think that you perhaps came here to hear us tell you to turn the other cheek to the brutality of the white man, I say again, you came to the wrong place. Finally, he was selected to lead Temple No. 7 in Harlem, where he was responsible for a huge surge in membership. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the south, and we don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the north. We teach you to obey the law. We teach you to carry yourselves in, in a respectable way. But at the same time, we teach you that anyone who puts his hand on you, do your best to see that he doesn't put it on anybody else. The FBI now had him under surveillance due to his sudden profile as the nation's rising star. Malcolm's rise to national prominence happened in 1957, when he intervened at a police station to arrange for medical assistance and legal help for members of the nation who had been beaten and arrested by New York police. The crowd of protesters outside grew to almost 4,000. Witnessing Malcolm's control of the crowd shook the New York Police Department. Within weeks, they had him under surveillance and officially began infiltrating the nation. 
1958, Malcolm married his wife Betty, with whom he would have six daughters. Malcolm's profile continued to grow via print and television appearances, and he began to gain international exposure. Who is it that controls the prostitution in Harlem? It's the white man. Who controls the large sale of whiskey and wine? It's the white man. Who gives you the deck of cards and the dice that you use to gamble with? It's the white man. And after he sell them to you, he kept you with them and put you in jail for using them. He was deeply critical of the growing civil rights movement and its leaders, like Dr. Martin Luther King, who preached integration. That's what you mean by nonviolence. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's this American white man. A uh, hundred years ago, they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today, they've taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms. They've uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy. Or Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today. Malcolm's message was being heard louder than ever, but his relationship with the man who had transformed his life was about to fracture. Tensions were growing within the nation over the amount of attention Malcolm was receiving compared to his mentor, Elijah Muhammad. An unprovoked raid on a Nation of Islam mosque by police in Los Angeles led to one member being paralyzed and another being killed. No charges were laid against the police. The white man believes you when you go to him with that old sweet talk, because you've been sweet talking him ever since he brought you here. Stop sweet talking. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how what kind of hell you've been catching, and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Malcolm was reportedly stunned by Elijah Muhammad's refusal to allow any form of response or retaliation for the incident. The two also disagreed over Malcolm's desire to begin working with civil rights organizations, black politicians, and other religious organizations. Then, suddenly, here is a bulletin from CBS News. Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. President Kennedy has been seriously wounded. Malcolm's response to the Kennedy assassination led to him being officially silenced for 90 days. Malcolm X, you were involved in a controversy some months ago with your leader. Is that over? Well, I've been, I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the President of the United States, uh, which were distorted. They were distorted? And, yes. And, what did you say, and, and, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost, and, which means the same thing. In March of 1964, Malcolm publicly announced his break from the Nation of Islam. He also expressed a desire to work with other civil rights leaders, saying that Elijah Muhammad had prevented him from doing so. Then came a bombshell. Well, in reality, I never even left the Muslim movement. They put me out. And they put me out because of what I knew. And what I knew was told to me by Mr. Muhammad's son, uh, Wallace Muhammad himself. They put me out and they put him out. Who is the father of all of these various children whom you have enumerated? Uh, the first one to tell me who the father was was Wallace Muhammad, and he told me that the father was Elijah Muhammad himself. One of and how many of these illegitimate children did he father with the sisters? Well, he made uh, six sisters pregnant. They all had children. Two of those six had two children. I am told that there is a seventh sister who is supposed to be in Mexico right now, and she's supposed to be having a child by him. 
Are you not, perhaps, afraid of what might happen to you as a result of making these revelations? Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. After splitting from the nation, Malcolm began learning the tenets and practices of Sunni Islam. He founded the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, a religious organization, and the Organization of Afro-American Unity, a non-religious group promoting Pan-Africanism. He had softened his position on Martin Luther King, who he met only once in person. And later the same year, he performed Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. This was to be yet another transformative experience for him. When I was in on the pilgrimage, I had close contact with Muslims whose skin would in America be classified as white, and with Muslims who themselves would be classified as white in America. But these particular Muslims didn't call themselves white. They looked upon themselves as human beings, as part of the human family, and therefore they looked upon all other segments of the human family as part of that same family. Now, uh, they had a different look or a different air or a different attitude than that which is uh, reflected in the uh, attitude of the man in America who calls himself white. So I said that if uh, Islam had done, this, done that for them, perhaps if the white man in America would study Islam, perhaps they could do the same thing for him. After Mecca, Malcolm made two trips to Africa, meeting officials and speaking on radio and television across the continent. In Cairo, he attended the second meeting of the Organization of African Unity and met Africa's most high-profile leaders, including Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, and Ahmed Ben Bella of Algeria, who all offered him official positions in their respective governments. He met with Fidel Castro and was one of the first African-American leaders to meet the newly created Palestinian Liberation Organization and was one of the pioneers of a tradition of black Palestinian solidarity that would be continued by the Black Panther Party and the Black Lives Matter movement. A common misconception about Malcolm's philosophical evolution is that his process of turning to Sunni Islam softened his political positions. While it's true that Malcolm abandoned some of the nation's more extreme separatist positions on race, he remained a staunch black nationalist. I think what a lot of people are interested in, Malcolm, is whether this experience has made you feel that that your feelings have changed, that uh, that the animosity you have expressed in the past toward all fights. There's one the thing that I want to make clear. No matter how much respect, no matter how much uh, uh, recognition whites show toward me, as far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. If anything, Malcolm's travel had led him to globalize his perspective, seeing black liberation as something beyond the United States, and as something that was intimately tied to struggles for independence across the third world. It has remained a domestic problem. It has remained within the jurisdiction of the United States. And it has, and as such, it has been impossible for the Afro-Americans or American Negroes to try and enlist the support of other dark-skinned uh, people who are being oppressed the world over in, in that struggle. And the only way this can be done is by internationalizing the problem. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who's, who's in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, brown, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, a time when there's got to be a change. The Nation of Islam had not taken Malcolm's exit and public criticism of Elijah Muhammad's misconduct lightly. His family was repeatedly threatened, 
their car was bombed, and FBI surveillance records show that law enforcement was aware that elements within the nation were openly discussing his death. Then his house was burned down. On February 21, 1965, Malcolm was addressing the Organization of Afro-American Unity in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom. He was shot 21 times. Three Nation of Islam members were tried and convicted of the murder, but questions remained. At the time of his death, Malcolm was under surveillance by both the NYPD and the FBI's COINTELPRO operation. For many, there is simply no doubt that one or both organizations had a hand in his assassination. Malcolm's legacy went on to be preserved in hip-hop, film, and literature. Most importantly, his own autobiography, which continues to be celebrated and was named one of the 10 most influential non-fiction books of the 20th century. His politics continue to inspire generations of activism against racism and imperialism worldwide. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change and a better world has to be built, and the only way it's going to be built is with extreme methods. And I, for one, will join in with anyone, don't care what color you are, as long as you want to change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. Thank you. Malcolm's funeral was held in Harlem. Some estimate that up to 30,000 people attended. Actor and activist Ozzie Davis delivered the eulogy. Harlem has come to bid farewell to one of its brightest hopes, extinguished now and gone from us forever. Many will ask what Harlem finds to honor in this stormy, controversial, and bold young captain, and we will smile. Many will say, turn away, away from this man, for he is not a man, but a demon, a monster, a subverter, and an enemy of the black man. And we will answer and say unto them, did you ever talk to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever touch him or have him smile at you? Did you ever really listen to him? Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. This was his meaning to his people. And in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. What we place in the ground is no more now a man, but a seed, which after the winter of discontent will come forth again to meet us. And we shall know him then for what he was and is, a prince, our own black shining prince who did not hesitate to die because he loved us so. You now use Shabazz and drop X? I'll probably continue to use Malcolm X because, and I'll probably use it as long as the situation that produced it exists. Excellent radio documentary. Uh, who was Malcolm X? And uh, I'm playing it because February 19th, 1965 is when he was murdered. And um, the documentary 
who killed Malcolm X is an amazing personal personal story of a guy who decides to find out exactly who pulled the trigger. There were three people arrested, but only one of them was really guilty. The other two were not. Everyone insisted they were not. They still spent 20 years or so in jail. Their lives were taken from them. And so this guy goes, uh, takes it on himself. And he goes and find, tries to find the people who actually did it and the people who investigated it and the people who were involved in it. Uh, Six-part series. Check it out. Okay, let's... Uh, Let's get on some music. Um, there's one I want to play. Mick Taylor. Well, we'll talk about it after. Mick Taylor is a former member of the Rolling Stones. And a slide guitar devotee. is a great slide guitar player. This is the uh, classic Little Red Rooster.
blowing, it plays a happy tune. The conductor's calling all aboard, we'll be leaving soon. With champagne and shrimp cocktails, and that's not all you find. There's a billion dollar bonus and no beggar left behind. No banker, no banker, no banker could I find. When the train pulled out next morning, no beggar was left behind. Cooter, a couple of Rye Cooter songs right there to finish off that set. Um, last one we heard was No Banker Left Behind, Rye Cooter's reaction to the banker's bailout. We were talking last week about housing and um, how homes were taken from people as the government bailed out the very rich corporations, the banks, and let working people lose their homes. No banker left behind, he's saying there's a billion-dollar bonus. We got away with it. The public had to pay. Many of the same people are still running those banks or people of their ilk. It's funny. If someone messes up, the bigger they mess up, the more permanent they become. Before that, Red Cat Till I Die, of course, Raikuda referring to the Red Cat of the IWW, one of the uh, largest and most dominant labor organizations in American history. <clears throat> and uh, before that, Mick Taylor, personal choice. I was reading a lot about Mick Taylor in his days with the Rolling Stones and... Uh, how uh, he's not given credit, for example, uh, he he took Country Honk, which the Rolling Stones had written kind of as a, a pastiche of a, of a country song, and he turned it into Honky Tonk Women. There's some question about whether he did it or other people did it, but he is is credited with that a lot. And uh, he was with the Stones for five years. Finally said he got sick of the drugs. I guess he was referring to Keith Richard. I don't know exactly. 
other people say Richard was jealous of his uh, talent as a guitar player and didn't, you know, want to be compared to him or didn't want him in the band. Richard denies that, I should say. But um, Mick Taylor with a slide guitar uh, version of The Little Red Rooster. Famous, famous Muddy Waters song. Okay, it's time to listen to Radio Labor. That's our Radio Labor, our worldwide labor news magazine. Things that are going on all over the world. Remember, you're only alone when you don't stand up. News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Friday, February 21st, 2020. I'm Mark Bologna. In the report this week, thousands of university workers in the UK have started a series of strike actions. Why cities are taking back previously contracted out services. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never weaken, stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line, hold that line, sisters, brothers, never weaken, stand and hold that picket line. This is Radio Labor. In the UK, 50,000 education workers have started 14 days of strikes for decent pay and working conditions. The workers are members of the University and College Union, the UCU. This is the third strike action in three years, with the most recent strike being held last December. Faisi Ismail is a member of the UCU Executive Committee at the University of London. She was asked why the workers are protesting their conditions. This has been going on for a very, very long time. This has been 10 years of, mar- of the marketization of education. We haven't had a pay increase since 2009. There's a massive pay inequality in terms of race and gender. The average academic works 51 hours per week, so that works out to something like 119 days per year of unpaid labor. You know, you have a situation where admin is, is very, very high, teaching loads of increase, so there's an intensification of our work, and we're not able to do the things that we want to do as academics and casualization there's over a hundred thousand academics working on atypical contracts which means they're on fixed term contracts they're uh, on hourly paid contracts and zero hours contracts and this is an unsustainable situation in a process called remunicipalization, cities all over the world are taking back control of services such as water supply that were outsourced to private companies. To find out why this is happening, I talked to Daria Cibrario. Ms. Cibrario is the policy officer in charge of local and regional government issues at Public Services International. The PSI is the organization which represents national public service unions at the world level. I asked Ms. Tribrario to describe remunicipalization. So Mark, remunicipalization or insourcing as some call it, it's the return of public services from private control and ownership of any form, so public-private partnerships, outsourcing, concessions or leases, to full public ownership, management or control. 
This kind of phenomenon is linked to the term municipal because it is uh, observed uh, eminently at the sub-national level. It is mostly municipalities, cities, local governments and their communities who are taking back control and in some cases we, we say deprivatizing their public services for a whole uh, series of reasons. What is interesting about this process is that very often what we see is not just a return to public as it was before the privatization, but these processes are creating a space and opportunities to make public services more democratic and participatory by giving a chance to service users, but also community groups, workers, residents, to co-design together with the local authorities the public services they need. There's also another terminology which is connected to remunicipalization and it's emerging increasingly and this is municipalization, which refers to the creation of new public service that was not existing before. And this, again, is being observed mostly at the, the local government level. So let me just mention uh, a few figures which can give you the, the magnitude of these trends. Recent data from the Transnational Institute, which will be published in a forthcoming book titled The Futurist Public, in April 2020, have identified 1,400 cases of remunicipalization or municipalization involving more than 2,400 cities in 58 countries, and these across all different sectors of services. Why should cities consider remunicipalization? Well, first of all, remunicipalization is a very practical, pragmatic response for local governments to deliver quality public services to their local communities following the clear failure of privatization to do so and keep its promises. After 20 years of systematic privatization, practically across all countries, around the world, what we see and uh, local government representatives of, of all across all political lines very often seem to agree on that. The access to basic services such as water, affordable housing, energy, but also health care, uh, education and child social and elderly care has become more expensive, more difficult to access, and that is a big part of the widening inequality and, and social crisis and climate crisis as well that our world is experiencing today. And since local government is the first line of government which is in direct touch with people, with citizens, communities, residents, uh, local government is particularly well-placed to have to respond in a, in a very concrete and practical manner to these huge challenges. Unions in Africa are doing their best to fight sexual harassment at the workplace. Here with a report about one endeavor in Liberia is C. Marie Ainsborough. My name is Martha C. Morris from Liberia. I am a nurse by profession. I come from the National Health Workers Union of Liberia, Women Wing. Ms. Morris is one of the organizers of a special project in Liberia aimed at stopping sexual harassment in the workplace. 
The project has been organized by Public Services International, the PSI, and Communal, the Municipal Workers Union in Sweden. We have been working on the project since this 2019 that was supported by Communal through the connection of the PSI. And this project has been working on sexual harassment among the health workers, women on the workflow. Not just women, it was both men and women. And I'm here to admit that Liberian women have not known that sexual harassment was a serious issue to talk about. Even though they have been greatly affected, they have not been promoted or gotten the assignment that they deserve because bosses who were responsible to either promote you because you deserve it or assign you are the ones who have been the, the reasons of the sexual harassment. So since we started this project, the women on the workflow from the health workers and even the men that we included in the awareness we were creating, this have given a lot of women the courage to be able to stand up and talk about these challenges in the direction of sexual harassment. But before then, before this project, women were so afraid to talk about it. It was even like a taboo that women could not talk about sexual harassment. So after the awareness, we have 15 counties. We call that chapters in Liberia where the National Health Workers Union are established. But because of the support from Kamuna, we have been able to work in five of the 15 counties. So we are still left with 10 more counties to work on. But we are very grateful that we have started. The five counties we were able to create awareness with around 500 women and several other men. And we even established women's committee in the various workplaces that any case of sexual harassment on the workflow in that facility will be reported to that women committee and the women committee will go through the process to channel that case to the next level. You can find more information about the sexual harassment project in Liberia by visiting the PSI's YouTube channel. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a small sample. Our top story sections included links to coverage of a significant organizing victory at Kickstarter in the United States, an in-depth analysis of internal reform efforts at the All-China Federation of Trade Unions, and how South African vineyard workers won a huge victory using international solidarity. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a very few highlights. We carried stories about wage strikes by Spanish crash workers, mine workers in Mexico, airport staff in Australia, and Portuguese mushroom farm employees who won their strike this week and returned to work with a substantial wage increase, all after just two days off the job. 
rollbacks were the issue in a dispute involving judicial workers in Côte d'Ivoire. And for the first time, French ski resort workers last week joined in the national strikes against cuts to pensions by a wide variety of occupations. Walkouts by workers fighting government austerity policies included Greek transport workers who were objecting to the privatization of social insurance programs. Their walkout brought the capital city of Athens to a complete standstill. There was a solidarity strike in Brazil where truckers have parked their rigs in solidarity with oil workers. Attacks on basic labor rights saw Indian and Nicaraguan construction workers down tools in wage theft protests. Our Working Women pages, now available in eight languages, included stories about how the intense exploitation of the women who grow, pick, and package flowers in Colombia for export to Europe and North America are affected, and how their health, especially reproductive health, suffers, how the coronavirus emergency in Hong Kong disproportionately hits women domestic workers, and how a new global framework agreement between Uniglobal Union and a transnational employer will work to the advantage of women. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about a Canadian study that links fewer nursing staff to increased levels of hospital violence, the huge cost borne by workers as a result of the Australian bushfires, and how South African public transport workers have become punching bags for frustrated commuters. Our current photo of the week illustrates the struggles of Brazilian workers as they try to defend their social services in the face of an attack by a far-right government. Currently, Start is running four online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Robin Roberts with Hold That Line. Hold that line, hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line, hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. We're standing here together, one for all and all for one. And we'll keep right on here standing till our victory we have won. We're united in our struggle, no, there's none us can divide. We'll yield nothing to the enemy, cause we've justice on our side. See now, hold that line, hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line against the World Bank and against the IMF. Hold that line and keep on holding it as long as we have breath. Hold that line against their dogma. Hold that line against their creed. Hold that line to save the future from their plunder and their greed. Now hold that line. Hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold That Line was written by Peter Hicks and Jeff Francis. And that's it. International labor news you can use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Thank you.
champion of the world Maybe a socialite with long stringy pearls But you got to serve somebody Somebody, 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 somebody
Eddie James with You Gotta Serve Somebody and You Know It's True. We've been telling you that here on Labor and Love. Is it going to be the devil or the Lord? Is it going to be the corporate or the public? The worker or the financier? Who are you going to serve? This is the B and the show is Labor and Love. I want to get into some local stories now. Um, El Tecolote this week featured a story about a place on 24th Street called Els, which, if you know it, is a is a coffee house. They have uh, you know pastries and food. Well, Els was was started by three sisters, the Loscano sisters, and the Loscano sisters have been running it now for 15 years, very much as a community place uh, where people could come and have meetings, you could go in and do an interview with somebody, you could sit down with your iPad or your laptop and do your work, um, they donated money and time to local organizations. Well, they decided they were going to close. They live far away now. Two of the sisters live in uh, Antioch and some of their place uh, in the suburbs. And they didn't. They were getting tired of coming into town, so they decided to sell their to sell their place, sell their business, right? Lourdes and Rosie. Um, the Lostano sisters worked with a real estate agency to find a new owner. The people that were coming had all kinds of these ideas about making it into an expensive place. They wanted to change it completely, said Lourdes. The sisters didn't like the idea of their space being taken up by a business that would further gentrify the corridor. We felt the impacts of gentrification. These women have seen their clientele flip. The customers that were all there, after three or four years, they all disappeared. There was a whole other crowd coming in. They were acutely aware of what was happening. So the sisters dropped the real estate agent and realized the initial successor to Elle's Cafe had been right in front of them all the time an employee named Santos Lopez, guy from uh, Yucatan and lives in the mission. Most of his relatives now are in San Francisco. They made Lopez an offer and he took about a month to think it out. There are some opportunities that when they present themselves, take them because you don't know if you'll ever get another one. And since Santos, whose name is Lopez, shares a last name initial with the Lozano sisters, he will be keeping the L's coffee name. So help this guy out. Um, We can see, you can see what's happening to the mission, what's happening to, uh, or has happened to all of San Francisco's neighborhoods, wave after wave of... um, 
economic activity has gone over them. They're much more expensive now. That means then when a, a neighborhood gets more expensive, then you get different people there. Not saying they're good or bad, but a neighborhood like the Mission has such a vault of culture and see when culture and money collide uh, money wins money wins because people want money people will sell culture for money so this is this is stopping that from happening this is the opposite this is a guy who wants to maintain the community identity of Else Cafe and the mission in general. Okay, so go on in there. It's uh, on 24th Street. Let me see if I can find the address. I've got my tecolote in my hands here. Tecolote, of course, is a community uh, newspaper of the mission, published bi weekly. Els Cafe. It's a coffee store uh, down t towards uh, Alabama Street. Um, anyway, check it out. The other article that's of interest in, in El Tecolote is this about a public bank, the public bank option, where a public entity operates a bank. It's happening in one of the Dakotas, I think. So you don't get those connections to to pig enterprises all over the world, like uh, investing in um, in labor-intensive, low-paid labor jobs where there are no unions or where unions are actively opposed where people are paid as little as possible and their products charged priced at as much as possible. But the producers don't get the, the fruit of their labor because it goes into interest. The bank collects interest in uh, profits and distributes it to their shareholders or their boards, private. Public option would have the state, the city in this case, operating a bank, but not for profit. Okay, they would still have to find investments and hopefully invest in things like the Green New Deal. But anyway, that's a discussion we should really follow. El Tecolote, check it out. Okay, let's take a look now at the Pissed Off Voter's Guide. If you're living in San Francisco, this is a, an essential guide to who to vote for. It's put together by a bunch of progressive people. Okay, let's start at the beginning now. The president, they endorse Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, with a nod to Bernie. Elizabeth Warren has our member support. Big, bold changes like a wealth tax and tackling the climate crisis. 
Bernie Sanders has the most league support. He's the only candidate we can trust to fully tackle the crises of capitalism and climate catastrophe. For Congress, Shahid Butt Buttar, a global activist acting locally. They also um, endorse my congressperson, Jackie Speer, who's got the southern part of the city. A Latinx Democratic Socialist named Jackie Fielder for State Senate. Superior Court Judges, an opportunity to balance the court's current concentration of anti-tenant corporate attorneys and former prosecutors who favor traditional tough-on-crime sentences. Maria Evangelista, Michelle Tong, Carol Gold, from the three different districts. Prop D, tax on leaving storefronts entry, in, empty, imposes a tax on commercial landlords who leave ground floor storefronts vacant for too long in certain districts of the city. Finally, a broken windows theory that punches up. Property owners have a responsibility to the public to use their land to benefit society. I recommend a yes vote on Prop D. Prop E, force office developers to care about affordable housing. Vote heck yeah. Um, so, go through that pissed off voters guy. Another local story here. Okay, Shizu. Painter Shizu Saldamando puts a face on to LA's Latinx art and punk scenes. Now, Shizu is a local girl. She grew up in the mission. Uh, moved to L.A. to pursue uh, her art career. Um, got married. Has a child. But <clears throat> wherever she's gone, she's put her stamp on her work. To be in a, This is a writer named Carolina Miranda. To be in a gallery filled with portraits by Shizu Saldamando is to stand by her side at a rowdy concert or to observe the casual encounters among her circle of friends. There are laughs and kisses and surges of sweaty bodies as they rush a stage. There's the smoking of cigarettes and moments marinated in booze are the intimate choreographies of lifetime friendships. For more than two decades, Shizu Saldamando has captured the people in her miss. In her 20s and 30s, it was the flamboyant poets and punks she hung out with in the city's underground music scenes. Now at 41, the mother of a three-year-old son, her portraits have calmed, frequently focusing on her circle of artist friends. 
I was doing a show month, says Sadamando, and the organizers told me they were interested in my youth subculture paintings. I had to explain that I wasn't trying to be about youth subculture, it was just my life. Now I've gravitated to more professional artists. It's still personal about who my friends are and who I admire. <clears throat> So, do we need more images and more paintings of the struggling immigrant? She asked rhetorically. That's a huge narrative. There's more to the Latinx experience than trauma. Okay. Jesus Saldamando. There's a... Uh, an exhibit of her work opening in uh, Los Angeles. Labor history in two minutes. Let's check it out. February 19th. February 22nd. Fighting for a floor. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1860. That was the day that the shoemakers of Lynn, Massachusetts, walked out on strike. The shoemakers were very concerned over how technology was changing their work. Shoemaking had long been considered a skilled craft. Making shoes was typically done as piecework in the homes of the craftsmen. Often, other family members, including the women of the household, helped to make the shoes. But technological advances transformed the industry. The introduction of the Singer sewing machine in 1852 moved more shoemaking into factories. Many young women went to work stitching at these machines. What was once considered highly skilled work was now transforming into mass production. Then, to make matters worse, in 1857, a depression swept across the nation. Shoemakers saw their wages slashed. In response, on George Washington's birthday, the shoemaker went out on strike. They demanded an industry-wide standard wage. 20,000 workers joined the strike. 20,000 more supported the striking workers at protests and parades. Two weeks into the conflict, women from the factories took to the streets joining the strike. But the male shoemakers were weary of joining their cause to that of the women. Predictably, this division aided in causing the strike to falter and fade. Although the strike was not successful, it drew national attention to the plight of workers. During the conflict, presidential candidate Abraham Lincoln spoke out in support of the workers. He said, I'm glad to see that a system of labor prevails in New England in which laborers can strike when they want to, where they are not obliged to labor whether you pay them or not. I like a system that lets a man quit when he wants to and wish it might prevail everywhere. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1997. And if you had theater tickets that evening to see Beauty and the Beast in Seattle, the show did not go on as planned. Musicians at the Fifth Avenue Theater, members of Local 76-493, had been on strike for a week. At issue was their compensation for performance. The union believed their wages were far below the industry standard for similar markets. The theater managers refused to budge. The union went out on strike, canceling eight performances of the much-anticipated Disney Broadway musical. But this was the last night the theater stayed dark. Management brought in replacement musicians. The curtains rose with the scab musicians playing inside while the picketers marched outside. The Musicians Union had a long history in Seattle. Local 76 was first formed in 1898. 60 years later, they joined the Black Musicians Local, Local 493, integrating the union for the very first time. 18 members of the Local 76 participated in the Fifth Avenue Theater strike. Four additional Disney musicians refused to play. Community solidarity for the strikers was strong. Each night, hundreds would join the picket lines as a brass band played outside the theater. Violinist Libby Poole Presley was impressed by this show of support, saying, I was floored. Here were hundreds of people helping us out in a stunning show of labor and community solidarity. To us striking musicians, it felt like magic to have the power of that many people behind us. The magic of solidarity helped the musicians win a contract victory and end their strike. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Okay, this is the B, and we're getting right close to the end of our show. It always sneaks up on me. I always got a lot more to say than <laughs> time to say it in. But never fear. Look forward to Flat Black Plastic, Scott O'Walker. Is it on, what's it, Spotify? It's called Spotify, right? This one's Tranquil's Egg. It gets a dollar they didn't work for. Quit, quit Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. Remember, never let it anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Of course, they don't want you to organize. Of course, they don't want you to make alliances. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Your work makes them rich. This is Labor and Love signing off. With the great Van Morrison.
Money, 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 money too That ain't all That I did for you
Chief Nurse Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on mutinyradio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8 that's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Venice. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? 
Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control bring Flat Black Plastic Mutiny Radio. Dot event. <laughs> 